Welcome to class. Please take a seat. This is James Renner, author of True Crime Addict and host of True Crime This Week podcast. In January 2023, I held a series of online sessions on the topic of true crime writing. Everything from picking the perfect case to uh, selling and marketing your book. I hope you enjoy On Writing True Crime. For more information or to contact me personally, visit jamesrenner.com. There we go. Well, that was easy. Okay. Let's begin. Uh, so there are two types of um, there are two types of true crime writing. And when you're looking, and hopefully everybody is is here, you know, I mostly work in books, although I, you know, like I said, I started out writing long form articles. So you can actually use these tools for long form articles as well if you're interested. It's a slightly different process because you're going to be submitting to magazines and newspaper editors as opposed to book publishers. Um, so like I was saying, there's two types of true crime writing. You can write about cases that are solved and you can write about cases that are unsolved. And that's kind of the line. You either do one or the other and there are pros and cons to each. So, um, let me, let me just go through this. If you're writing about solved cases, you know, you're looking at, um, there are people that do this really well. Uh, and I'm thinking of people like uh, M. William Phelps. I've got some books on here. Um, he's one of my favorite writers. This is actually a book that uh, was written, I'm here in Akron, Ohio. That's, that's my home base. And this is a book that he wrote about a very famous local murder that had to do with um, polyamory in, in the 1990s. It's very interesting. Um, but M. William Phelps and Greg Olson are very well known for writing those types of cases. Uh, in fact, the, the, you know, the first big true crime book in Cold Blood was actually uh, about a, a, a solved case. Um, and those books take you through the crime, the entire process of the investigation and trial and sentencing, and it gives you a nice uh, ending that unsolved cases don't have. And a lot of people really enjoy <laughs> having that concrete you know, ending, everything wrapped up in a bow at the end. Um, now, there, like I said, pros and cons. The pros to that sort of approach, if you're interested in writing about solved crimes, is you're in a much better legal standing. Um, it's and it's easier to publish those sorts of uh, what's the name of uh, those sorts of of books. Um, question here from Jane: What's the name of Phelps' book? It, it's called "If Looks Could Kill," and. Um, in Akron, there was this place called the Taj Mahal, um, which was totally, uh, you know, appropriated culture because it was built by a, a white guy here um, that was a local music venue. And his wife uh, had a couple had a couple lovers and one of them killed the other. And she was eventually tried and and put in prison for her role in this whole thing but then she was 
uh, let out. It was overturned by the Ohio Supreme Court. So it's a very weird case. Um, but yeah, that's if, if looks could kill by M. William Phelps. So uh, like I said, if you're writing about a solved case, um, it's easier to publish because uh, for a couple of reasons, it's, it's solved. Um, and publishers, especially today, publishers are all about mitigating risk. You go to them with a book and they'll look at it. And the first thing they'll do is, you know, what are, you know, they'll ask, what's, what's the legal ramifications of this? Or, you know, is, is there any defamation in here? Is there, you know, can we get sued for any sort of reason? Um, and with a solved case, what's good is you have trial transcripts. And why that's, why that's important is trial transcripts are what's called privileged communication. And privileged communication is kind of, in the United States anyways, is a protected, um, protective source of information. So it will protect you even if it's defamation. So if a witness is on the stand and they're like, this guy, I know, you know, um, uh, is a devil worshiper and he, you know, he, he cooks babies in the spare, in, you know, in his back room. And it's all like, it's, it's not real, of course. Um, if you publish that, you won't get sued. Now, uh, you know, of course, you're not going to publish that uh, because you know it's false, but you could you could put it in there as a way of showing how crazy that that witness was, right? Um, now, uh, if you were just to interview that person and they said it, that of course is is actionable defamation. They could sue you, but once it's in the court, once it's in the transcripts, it protects you because what you're reporting on specifically is that courtroom situation that occurred that happened on the record. So transcripts are privileged. It protects you from defamation. Um, also, the bad guy, in solved cases, the bad guy is usually already in prison. So you don't have that hanging over your head. If you're looking at an unsolved case, you know, you have to worry about, you know, what are you digging into? You know, is somebody going to retaliate? You know, this person doesn't want you to solve the crime. Or are they going to come after you? When I was starting out as a reporter, I remember um, I had this editor, his name was Pete Cotts, and he used to take us out to the bars in Cleveland. There was this place called the Harbor Inn, which is the oldest bar in Cleveland. It's in the flats. And uh, I asked him one day when I was writing about the Amy Mihaljevic case, I said, are you ever worried that the people, the suspects you write about are going to come for you or your family? And he laughed and he said, "Nah." he's like, Jimmy, the uh, they never come after you. He said they'll come after the people that you quote in the article. They'll come after the witnesses, your sources, but you're fine. Um, but that's that's not really the case anymore. Something's happened in the last 20 years where, especially with social media, where everybody's easily found and it's easier to kill the messenger than than anything else. So you, you want to keep that in mind. So with solved cases, bad guys already in prison, you don't have much to worry about. Now, the cons with writing about solved cases is it's most likely already been written about. You know, look at, um, 
I'm trying to think of the big cases in the last year that were solved. Um, you know, the Gabby Petito case, for one. Um, if you're writing a book about that case, I mean, we're almost uh, overwhelmed with information in that case. And, you know, what are you going to say that's new? Yeah, I, I guess with that case, the first person out of the gate might have a book because it would be the first place where all that information is in a single source. But I don't see much fun in that, in a case that everybody already knows about. You know, what are you adding to it? Um, also, in a solved case, keep in mind that if you go the traditional publishing route, which is what we're all about and what I'm trying to um, uh, help everybody aspire to, um, that process takes two to three years. So from the moment you begin work, it's probably going to be about two and a half to three years before your book is on any sort of bookshelf. So is the case you're writing about now, even like if you start writing about the Idaho murders or Gabby Petito, is anybody going to care about it three years down the road? You have to keep that in mind too. Um, personally, I lose interest as soon as a case is solved. Uh, I grew up on Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, I, I loved watching that program. And, you know, there's this extra, there's this extra little bit that Unsolved Mysteries and Unsolved Cases in general have that solved cases don't. And it's that, it's that, um, you know, addicting feeling that maybe you can help the case or solve the case. And as a journalist, if you're the person that's digging into this case, you're definitely going to find some new stuff. And you're going to have a moment where you feel like, oh, my God, I, I, I know what happened. I've solved this case. It's going to happen. But, you know, to actually physically, you know, to actually literally solve a case, it's very few and far between. Very rare. It's very, very rare. Very few authors have ever actually done it. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll have one in their whole, their, their whole career. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm a terrible gambler. I like the, I, I like the uh, terrible odds of something like that. So if you're interested in writing about, and that's not to say don't write about solved cases. If, that, that, if that's what interests you, by all means, go for it, because those are the books that that's an easy sell for publishers, like I said. Um, and those are the those are the books that people like to read. You know, they'll they'll interview readers, and invariably they'll they'll say, "I like an ending to a book. I it needs to have an ending. If I write if I read about a crime, I need to know it's it's concluded." Uh, so, you know, go for it. Um, if you're interested, if you're interested in writing about unsolved crimes, though, um, the first question you should ask yourself is how long should you wait before you can feel good about writing about a case? You know, if it's unsolved, you know, how long should you wait before you really start delving into it? And personally, I would not touch a case that's less than five years old. Um, you know, like, again, looking at the Idaho murders, uh, and hopefully everybody's familiar with this as a big story in the United States, uh, you know, four underclassmen uh, or college students in 
Idaho murdered in their in their townhouse and this guy was just arrested last week or the week before uh you know so before he was arrested there was all this interest in the case and i'm sure there were writers thinking about writing about it but the reason i i would wait until at least five years on a case like that is because you have to allow the police to do their job um and and really, it, it takes a while for a big case like that to be solved by police. You have to let them do their footwork. Uh, you know, there. So, and again, with unsolved cases, there's pros and cons to that as well. Um, the pros with writing about unsolved uh, murders or disappearances is um, there's probably a larger public interest in some of those in some of those stories because simply of the fact that they're unsolved. You'll have people on um, Reddit and web sleuths and Facebook. And if if you're not, if you don't have a presence in those areas, I strongly suggest that you uh, learn about those social media outlets and and get an account on those because there's a lot that happens um, there at the moment and actually TikTok too. TikTok has become big in the in the true crime world. Um there are subreddits like unresolved mysteries where and and uh just true crime where they will debate these unsolved cases and you can pick up you can see where everybody's kind of focused and pick up on avenues of investigation there. Um another good thing about writing about unsolved cases is you're actually doing something good, you know, for society. You're you're providing a service, and by providing the information about these mysteries, you can, if you don't solve the case, you can provide the information for somebody that that might know something about the case but don't realize that they're a key to solving it. You know, might have that puzzle piece that's missing. And um, for instance, um, so the Amy Mihalovic book. And I, I'm going to talk about that in more detail a little bit later. But um, when I wrote it, in, it, it was published in 2006. And um, Amy was a 10-year-old girl from Bay Village who was abducted and murdered in 1989. The case remains unsolved. And I tried to put as much information in there as possible because we don't know what the clue is that will solve the case. We don't know what's going to make sense to somebody and and be the piece that that that, that makes it all make sense. Um, and so there was this character, Amy had a she was taking riding lessons. She was a uh, she rode horses. And she had a riding instructor with the last name of Tom Sue. And I thought that was a very interesting last name. I've never heard it before or since. And uh, I fought with the editor. The editor said, hey, you look, you, you mentioned the horseback rider's name once. He's like, I don't think it's important. Let's just cut it and refer to her as a horseback riding instructor. And I said, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't know what's important and what's not. It's a very unique last name. Let's leave it in. So we did. So flash forward to six months after the book was published, and I get uh, contacted by 
a woman who was Amy's age at the time of her abduction. And she said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I was called by Amy's killer too. And if, you know, going back just a little bit, if you're unfamiliar with the case, there was this, whoever killed Amy was calling her in the days leading up to her abduction when she was home alone after school. And he said, hey, meet me at the shopping plaza on Friday and I'll take you to get a, a gift for your mother. It'll be a surprise. And that's how we lured her out. Well, a number of other girls were called by the killer in the days leading up to the abduction. He was trying to, he was just calling a lot of girls and seeing who would meet him. Well, this girl from North Olmstead, which is the township, one township south of where Amy went missing in Bay Village, Ohio, um, called me up and she said, hey, I just read your book. And this is strange, but you know that horseback riding instructor, instructor, uh, you know, Tom Sue, she said, I had a math teacher the year that Amy was abducted and his name was Tom Sue. She said, I wonder if he was related. And sure enough, he was the brother of Amy's riding instructor. So now we have a link between Amy and this other girl that was called by her killer. And how did he know her personal home number? Well, a teacher would certainly have, have that info. So the police were all over that information. And that just shows you that the smallest bit of info that you, that you can publish might break this case. So um, with unsolved cases, you, you never know, you know how your writing can affect these, these cases. Um, and it brings more attention to cases that that need that need solved. Now there are some definite cons to writing about unsolved murders and disappearances. Uh, first of all, you're much more likely to be sued. Uh, um, you don't have the protect protection of these trial transcripts to protect you from defamation. Um, so you know the first thing, and I'm I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but if you're interested in that sort of writing, which I, I certainly am, um, the first thing I would recommend is getting defamation insurance. And uh, I was surprised to find out that this was actually a thing, um, but I looked into it about three years ago when I was still working on the Moore Murray case. And there were you know crazy people coming out of the woodwork. And I'm like, you know, I just, I, I'd feel safer if I had some sort of protection. And if you work for a newspaper or a magazine, you know their their legal team will, will protect you. But a lot of us are freelancers who are going out and writing this book in our spare time. We have no protection from that corporation, so you need uh, private defamation insurance, and it's not that expensive. Um, you can get a policy. I my policy is through um, Berkshire uh, Hathaway. Um, and I, I think I pay like a little over $400 a year, which, you know, it's, it's, it's substantial if, if, you know, you're, you're on a shoestring budget, but it will protect you from, you know, serious legal repercussions if, if that comes, if it comes to that. So, um, also 
the the more time goes by, the more threat that there is that freelance writers could be charged with interfering in an investigation or obstruction of justice. Um, just in you know the these because of social media, these police departments and prosecutors' office uh, in these small town cases <clears throat> are really trying to push push the envelope and there you know I'd be surprised if we don't see some some journalists get prosecuted for this in the next year uh, you know specifically about the the Idaho murders and the Delphi murders if you're following the Delphi cases of the two girls who were murdered in Indiana back in 2017 um, both of those cases because of how big they became on social media uh, the prosecutors have threatened legal action to people that are talking about it or, you know, quote unquote, reporting on it on blogs and uh, social media with interfering with an investigation. And in fact, in both of those cases, the judges have begun to seal the records and put a gag order on everybody involved in it uh, due to uh, social media. So, um, you know, be careful with that. The The other thing about writing about unsolved cases is, you know, the they're going to be fewer and far between, and we're going to be fighting over them to some extent because of genetic genealogy. Um, genetic genealogy is so good these days that uh, any case that has DNA evidence of the killer, uh, I believe is going to be solved. It's just a matter of time and how many people are entering their data into these great genetic genealogy databases. So the unsolved murders, if you wait, you know, a murder occurs, you wait five years to let the police do their job. You know, if there's DNA evidence in that case, it'll likely be solved in that time. So the big cases like, you know, you look at Golden State Killer, um, and, uh, you know, these, there's this case out of Australia, the Somerton Man. Um, all these big cases are being solved by genetic genealogy. So the really cool, big, unsolved cases are going to be fewer and fewer uh, in the near future. So um, those are the pros and cons on solved cases versus unsolved cases. Um, but generally, how do you know? You're looking for a case to write about. How do you know it's a good case? How do you know it's worthy of a book? And remember, um, you know, the the fastest I've been able to write a, a true crime book is about nine months. Um, I would say it typically takes longer, you know, a year, year and a half to two years of research and interviews and, and the writing. So how do you know you found a case that's worthy of all that time and effort? Um, you know, some of the, the comments you'll get from people online is, you know, people, look, people die every day. What makes this case so special? And there are a couple of things to think about. Um, you know, one, one thing that makes a case important is um, does it say something about the human condition? Does it say something new? And uh, there's a book that I read last year that that I really like. It's called uh, 
couple found slain. And you know, true crime books are published every month. Um, most of them we don't hear about, but this one um, is different. So, you know, looking at why a case is important, this case is about the murder of um, a family, uh, uh, older parents who were murdered by their son. And uh, it's a tragic case, but you get all that in the first chapter. You find out about the murder or the first couple chapters, the murder happens. That's not what the book is about. The book is about how this young man was um, suffering from mental illness, severe mental illness, killed his parents in a state of delusion, was found not guilty by reason of insanity, placed in a mental hospital. And then while at the mental hospital became sane, which is what, you know, when you place them in there, you hope will happen, but you never really expect will happen. Well, what happens when you create, when you're, you're responsible for a double homicide and then you become sane in a state facility? Do they let you out? Can they let you out? Is that a good thing? So it becomes a, a bigger argument for um, what happens in that situation, which makes this story and this book uh, unique and says something about the human condition. Can we, are we, are we able to forgive this person for something he did that was so terrible because he wasn't in the right frame of mind? Um, another way that you can come at a story is uh, asking yourself, does it explore something new? Does it tell us about something that not many of us know about? Does it explore, for instance, a subculture? Is there a subculture of some sort? And um, I think of this book, it's called Bones. Um, it's by a writer named Joe Tone, who actually got his start at um, Cleveland Scene as well. This came out a few years ago. Now, Bones, it's not your traditional uh, true crime thriller. Uh, it's about um, quarter horse auctions, which, you know, as soon as you say that, it's like, uh, you know, you're falling asleep. It sounds kind of boring, uh, but it's about how in the South, these uh, quarter horse auctions are used to launder money for drugs and the drug trade in um, South America and Mexico. So it's a total subculture I knew nothing about. Most people don't know anything about, and this writer jumped into and escaped to tell the tale, and so those are the that's that's unique as well. Um, is the story compelling? Uh, I look back to um, how I came across the Moore Murray case to begin with, which was the subject of my last true crime book, True Crime Addict. Now before that. The biggest book I had published was regional. It was um, the book on the Amy Mihalovic case. So I was looking for something. I finally had an agent. I was looking for something bigger, something on a national scale. And I took my time trying to figure out what would be the best case to write about or the most interesting case. And at the time, my son was about five years old, and he would take naps in the afternoon 
like around three or whatever. And I would watch these old uh, Unsolved Mysteries or 2020 specials on true crime. And I remember one day he took a nap and I was watching this 2020 special that came on searching for an idea for a book. And it was a 2020 special that was on the disappearance of the disappearance of Brooke Wilberger and Moore Murray. And Brooke Wilberger, uh, it was a tragic case, but it it's pretty it was a pretty typical uh, abduction and disappearance. And then they started talking about Maura Murray and the and the the details of of her disappearance. And I realized it was something different. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Maura Murray's story, I'll try to summarize. Uh, she was a student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 2004. It's actually the week that Facebook launched, by the way which makes her the first big story of the social media age, uh, which in itself makes it kind of unique. But she emailed her professors on a Monday afternoon, said there's been a death in the family. Hold my work till the end of the week. That was a lie. We find out later. Uh, she drives to the bank, empties out her bank account, about $280, gets into her car, goes to the liquor store, buys way too much booze for one person, boxes, box of wine, um, you know, other, other liquor bottles, drives north into the White Mountains of New Hampshire, which is about a two and a half, three hour drive, gets into an accident on the, on the side of a country road at about 7.30 that night. So remember, it's February. It's dark up there. She wrecks into a snowbank. Now, it's in front of about three houses, and some of the neighbors hear the accident happen. They call the police. And so we know about the time that she crashed because that's when they called 911. And the officer who responded was there in about seven minutes. So somewhere in that seven-minute window, more Murray disappeared, never to be seen again. And I realized this was a unique case because it wasn't just one mystery. It was actually two. Um, what happened to Moore Murray, but also what was she doing in the White Mountains to begin with? So the reason I decided to make that subject of my book is because I was trying to play the odds. And I figured if I could solve one of those mysteries, I could get closer to the answer the other. If I could figure out what she was doing up there, I could figure out why she died. And so I just felt I had a better chance of success. And that's what led me to write about it and fall into that deep, dark rabbit hole. Um, so is the story compelling? And the, the only real way to develop that sixth sense of finding the right story, of finding what's compelling to readers is to read. And if you're interested in being a true crime author or writer or writer in general, you need to read, read, read um, all the time. Um, have a book with you wherever you go, even if you have a couple minutes just to glance through it. Um, you need to understand what's already been written, what works, what doesn't work, and um, develop that, that sense of when you find the right case, you know that this is that this is the one. 
Um, here's another big important part. So, you know, consider all, all of that part one. Here's part two. This will be the first thing that an agent or an editor or producer um, asks you. And that is, why should you tell the story? Which is an, it's a totally annoying question, right? Like, uh, I, I want to tell the story because it's interesting to me. Um, hang on one second. Did I miss? Um, I'm still trying to figure out how all this works. Did anybody, has anybody raised their hand um, for a question yet? I'm looking at. No. Okay. Nobody yet, James. Oh, is that Marsha? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, hi. Thanks. Okay, great. Okay, everybody's still with me. Let's 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 continue. Um, so uh, the first question you're going to be asked is why should you tell the story? It's a very annoying question. Um, but when I went to this regional publisher way back in 2005, uh, David Gray, who owns Grain Company here in Cleveland, and uh, he asked me that question. He said, "Why should why should you write the book about Amy Mahalovic? And I told him a story, and this is the story that got the deal that day. Um, and it's because it's a personal story. Uh, so Amy and I were the same age. We were both born in 1978. Um, do the math. Um, <laughs> and she went, she was abducted in 1989, and I had, I had turned 11. And she was from Bay Village, which is this ritzy suburb on the west side of Cleveland. My mother at the time lived in Rocky River, which was literally across the tracks from Bay Village. And when I would go up to visit my mother on weekends, I would ride my Huffy two-speed bike around and I would see the picture of this girl who was missing on all the telephone poles. And she had this like side saddle ponytail, very 80s look. And I remember thinking if she was in my class back home, uh, you know, and I was in sixth grade at the time, I think, if she was in my class, I'd be passing notes to her. What happened to this girl? And uh, so I started reading up on it and realized she had been missing. She was abducted from the town next door. <clears throat> and I became obsessed at the age of 11 with finding Amy Mihalovic. I didn't have much parental supervision. And I would ride my bike to Westgate Mall, which was, um, you know, back in, you know, 89, 80s and 90s, the mall was where everybody went. It was where the most people were at any given time. And so I would sit outside uh, Walden Books, and I would look at the crowds as they came through the mall, and I would look for men that looked like the composite sketch of Amy's abductor, with which they published in the, in the papers. And if I saw somebody that looked similar, I would follow him out to his car and I would jot down his license plate and I would walk it back in. And there were payphones outside of Aladdin's arcade and I would call in the tip. And But the only number I knew associated with the police at that time was 8765353, which was the toll-free number of unsolved mysteries. So somewhere Robert Stack was getting all these uh calls about an unsolved murder from an 11 year old kid in Cleveland uh, and it never went anywhere. So flash forward to February 8th, 1990, uh, which is just two or three months later. 
that's the day that they found Amy's body. And I had a routine where I would come home and turn on the TV and watch for news for any updates. My dad, and that's who I lived with at the time out in the country, he knew that I was obsessed with this case and following it. And so he had heard on the radio that they found Amy's body. So he rushed home to talk to me. And, uh, you know, I, of course, got home before he did turn on the TV. Amy's image is there. They're talking about finding her out on County Road 1181 in Ashland County. My dad gets home and he turns off the TV. He's like, hey, I want to talk to you about something. And he ran a construction company at the time. He was just starting out and he had this employee that was kind of that he fired. And after he fired him, this employee started leaving threatening messages on his uh, windshield. When he'd come out of work, he'd find these threatening messages. And one of the messages said that he was going to come after uh, me or my sister, you know, my dad's kids as retaliation. And so he was thinking about Amy Mihalovic. He was thinking about me and this possible abduction because we think of the worst case scenarios. And uh, so um, he said, look, I've been thinking about this on the way home. And what happened to Amy Mihalovic? And he said, I came up with a solution on how we, we, can, we can solve cases like this. He said, if what happened to Amy ever happens to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, if you find yourself somebody's house handcuffed to a couch or something, I want, and mind you, I'm 11 years old. Um, he said, I want you to pull up pieces of the carpet or, or bits of the couch or knickknacks, anything you can get your hands on and swallow it. And he said, that way, if, if he kills you and what happened to Amy happens to you, we can do an autopsy and we'll find those clues and we'll know who did it, and I'll know who I should kill. So that's how I became uh, obsessed with not just Amy Mihalovic, but true crime in general. And when I told that story to the publisher, when he asked me, why should you tell Amy Mihalovic's story? That's what got me the deal. So it's good to have that personal connection. Um, and uh, the Sylvia had a question, do you have to be obsessed with a case to be most successful. Um, not necessarily, but I, I certainly it certainly does help. Um, you know, and that goes to my next point. You don't have to have that personal connection to write about it. But there needs to be a there definitely needs to be a reason as to why you're writing about it. Um, maybe, and it could be, it could be a couple of things. Maybe you're the one that's able to get the family to trust you. And so the family will only, the family of the victim or the people that knew the victim, maybe they'll only speak to you. That's a good reason. Um, maybe the victim's life parallels your own. Um, you know, so maybe you find a victim and it's one of those there, but for the grace of God go I, you know, you could see that, um, scenario happening to you so you know how that victim's feeling you can write about it in a way that other people can't uh or maybe you know about um the specifics of what happened in that case in a way that other people don't i'm specifically thinking about cases like the missing airlines 
um, like the was that MH370, the Malaysian Airlines flight that vanished. You know, if you're a uh, uh, an engineer who who builds these jumbo jets, you're going to know things that other people would spend their life trying to understand, and you could write that in a way that nobody else does. So, especially if you have a connection to the case. Um, so yeah, uh, that, and also you need to know the answer to that question in order to really get the publisher or editor interested in it. But also it's good to have that personal connection because that's what you're going to rely on after you've done three, four months of research and it becomes boring. What's pushing you on to write about this? What's your, you know, and it's that personal connection, that personal obsession that's going to see you through <clears throat> the whole process. So it's good to have that and to figure it out. And if you don't have it, maybe you move on and you're like, well, you know, it's an, it's an interesting case, but should I be the one writing about it? And don't be afraid to ask yourself that question because everybody's going to be asking you that question later. Um, so the first step, you find a case that you think is interesting. Where do you go from there? First step is to explore the, the case just a little bit to see if there's enough there. Um, so I'm not saying don't do any interviews yet, but look into the case. Are there police reports? Are there court records of any kind that can protect you? Um, will the family talk to you? And I've, I've written, I've probably written about... Um, 30 to 40 articles on true crime. I've published, uh, I think, four true crime books so far. I've got another one coming out in June. Every case is different. Um, and when I, it's really helpful to have the family on board. And I will never, <clears throat> I will never again write a story or an article where the family is not on board. I did that with the Moore Murray case. Um, and it's been nothing but a nightmare for me since then. Um, but with the Amy Mihalovic case, her father, you know, unfortunately, her mother passed away, but her father's still around, and he invited me in. He's like, look, if, if you can help this case at all, you know, more power to you. Here's everything I know. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is Fred Murray, Maura Murray's father, who never wanted a book written about it at all and never would talk about it. So Usually it's somewhere in between. You get a family that's slightly reluctant, but they'll share information. So, but you got to know that going in before you commit your time. You know, are you going to have, um, are you going to have uh, that cooperation? Um, similarly, are the police going to talk? And I've had cases where um, there was a woman who was murdered here in Cleveland in 1964 named Beverly Jaros. And I went to Garfield Heights Police and I, I said, hey, I'm interested in writing about this case. They, they brought me in. They opened up all their files. They gave me total access. I rode along with the police for a while. But then uh, the, the Amy Mahalovic case, um, the police were very, very tight-lipped, even though it's, you know, it happened in 89 and we're in 2023. You know, they still keep everything really, really close to the vest, as they say. Um, so you've got both ends, ends of the spectrum there. It's good to know what sort of support you have going in. Sylvia asked a question here. Why 
Um, she, I think she read True Crime Addict about the Maura Murray case, and she asked, why did you weave some of your own story into True Crime Addict? And, um, you know, we'll get to this in, in later classes, but um, there's a movement in true crime that started, uh, you know, is there's kind of a long, a bigger picture here that actually begins with a novel uh, called The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo that many people are familiar with. But uh, the true crime stories that have come out in the last five to eight years um, have been a little more personal, where you're getting more of the story of the journalist mixed in with the story of the mystery. And uh, so I felt a little bit of that when I was writing True Crime Attic, but also, uh, you know, I was writing about a young woman who disappeared. We don't know, by the way, if Maura left on her own to start a new life or if she was murdered. They've never found a body. We don't know. There's no evidence of a crime. It's it's a very weird mystery. Um, but I found these unsavory things, and I felt that the best way for me to feel comfortable talking about that is if I also spoke as honestly about myself. And so, you know, I talked in that book. It's called True Crime Addict because I, I am an addict. And um, part of my journey in that book was talking about um my addictions, not just with alcohol, but with opioids and, and things like that. And I figured I could only be open and honest and revealing about Mora if I, if I were to shine that lens, you know, turn that lens on me too. So, um, and it seems like people are ready for that sort of, of storytelling again. Uh, so that's, that's why I included a lot, a lot of, a lot about me there. And that, that again, goes back to personal interest and why you should be writing this story. Um, there's Thanks. another, yeah. Sorry, there was another question above it because I know you're going to address this um, topic, okay. you know, but Amanda asked, how do you phrase your contact emails messages? I don't know if you see that in the chat right above. Okay, I do question. see it now, yeah. Um, uh, so Amanda asked, yeah, how do you phrase contact emails and messages when you, when you speak to the family for the first time in order to get a response? And, you know, there's no real clever way to do it. You just say, hey, um, I'm, inter I'm, an, uh, I'm interested in writing the longer story behind this mystery. Um, I think there's more here. You know, everybody's complicated. I want to get to know this, this victim a little bit better. Are you open to sharing the story with me? And would you like to meet in person? Um, I always, always, always... Um, meet these people in person before I have a lengthy phone conversation or trade many emails. Because if you get face to face with somebody and they see that, you know, they get a feel in person that your intentions are good and that your, your, um, your desire is just to tell the story right. And it goes such a long way. Um, and you can't do that over a phone call or email. So I try to set up that coffee or or a drink or something right off the bat in order to kind of, you know, break the ice. And, you know, lately what I've been doing is, you know, saying, you know, look, I'm I'm looking I'm looking for a new case. I don't know if this is it, but I'd like to learn more. And so you get rid of that, um, you know, pressure of them 
knowing that you're going to write this book, right? They're just meeting with a, a writer who's who's thinking about it, is interested in knowing more about this case. And um, that's the way I, I would approach it. That's the way I think would be the smart way to approach it, because that still gives you an out. Maybe that conversation will happen and you'll find out that, oh, wait, maybe there's not a whole book here. Maybe they don't want the story told um, and you don't have to commit to anything. So that's the way I'd handle it. Um, you know, some sometimes you'll find a case in the news or online that looks really interesting, that would make a wonderful book, but um, but can't be written. Um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm thinking here. There's a book that I really want to write that would be about Ray Greekar, a guy named Ray Greekar. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Ray Greekar was a prosecutor in uh, Pennsylvania. I see Beth. Beth is here from Pennsylvania. Um, uh, Ray was the prosecutor in uh, State College, PA, um, Center County, and he disappeared in, I think, 2005. And uh, under, he was close to retirement, and he decided to skip work one day and go to an antique store in the like the in the happy valley out there in the in the you know one of those small towns and he drove his little um little car out to the antique store and parked walked into the antique store and then vanished and his car was still sitting there the next day um nobody knows what happened to him um the and then you start getting weird clues in the next couple months uh there was a young uh, there was a woman who was with her son walking um behind the antique store is the Susquehanna River it's a big river in Pennsylvania and they were walking along the banks and they found a laptop and they turned it in and the police discovered that this was Ray Greekar's laptop and somehow it ended up in the river. And not only that, but the uh, the hard drive was not in it. Um, I, I think like a week later, they found the hard drive nearby, like under some soil. And it looked like the laptop, somebody had removed the hard drive and thrown them both in the water in an attempt to destroy them. So the question, in, in some ways, it's very much like the Maura Murray case. There's no evidence of a crime. There's enough evidence to lead you to, oh, maybe this guy started a new life, or maybe he was murdered and it was a cover-up, uh, because it came out a couple of years later that Ray Greekar actually knew about some serious allegations towards Jerry Sandusky. If you remember that that case with, uh, you know, the Jerry Sandusky was, I, I believe, an assistant coach at Penn State and was molesting um, young boys in the shower room uh, at the college. And Ray Greekar knew about this and was considering prosecuting him, chose not to, spoke with the, the victims, chose not to prosecute Sandusky for some reason. And then a week before his uh, retirement, or very soon before his retirement, he he vanishes under mysterious circumstances. So people were wondering, did Jerry Sandusky have him 
have them rubbed out or whatever. So it's a fascinating case, right? There's all this stuff, but everybody close to Ray Grecar is not talking. And his family <clears throat> will only talk a little bit. There's nothing there be beyond what we know in the newspaper. There's nothing you can get to until you somehow gain trust with that family. And I have not managed to do it. So, um, you know, sometimes you'll see those great stories and, and you need to explore them a little bit to find out if, if there's really enough there to write about. Um, oh, another thing you should, you should ask yourself when looking at uh, possible stories to write about is can you live with this story for years? Are you, are you ready to invest your emotional energy into this dark mystery for years? Can you live with that? Um, because uh, just, you know, we're going to get into the, into this um, in a later class when we talk about uh, you know, publishing and, and submitting and how that process works. But to give you a condensed version, um, the reason why you have to live with this for years is because it's going to take you about a year at, at, the, at least for the research and writing that goes into a true crime book or even a like a long form true crime article of any length. Um, there's going to be three months of submissions where your agent is submitting to uh, potential editors. Once you find an editor and publisher, it's going to be another 18 months to two years for production. And that, that, that covers everything from new drafts that you write with the editor to layout to um, they need to create advanced copies for reviewers that get to reviewers six months before publication. So it's a very slow, arduous process that you have to be ready for. Um, and then you've got six months of promotion after that. So you're committing to this case for minimum of three years. Um, that's the route if you want to make money in this. Uh, you, you can always self-publish. I've never um, I've never known um, a true crime author that is self-published that um, you know makes a comfortable living out of this. Um, you know, I've been publishing the traditional route. I get a little bit of money, but even I don't make living money off of publishing my books. The money I'm making to put, you know, food on the table is coming from optioning my books, which is kind of the dirty secret of this industry and takes away from like the creative artsy part of it um, because you can write your book, but you're going to make more money when a producer from Hollywood comes and and takes the option for that book. And what that is, is a promise that they have rights to try to sell that book as a TV show or movie for 18 months. <clears throat> and every time you get an option, you can make, you know, minimum of like $25,000 on, on these options. And, and I have a book, um, it's a novel, but it works the same way, but Primrose Lane that's been optioned like four times now and it's never been it's never made it to tv or or, or film but it keeps it keeps a, a a flow of money in um and that's unfortunately the the way that the the, the world's set up uh right now where um 
if you want to make money as a writer, uh, it's great to, um, you know, you're going to make a little money with, with the books until you become a big name or you get a great hit, but the options should be enough to keep you going to your next book. Uh, James, there's a, uh, Sylvia had another question in chat. Yeah. I don't know if you saw. She says, can I take a true crime case as inspiration and then I write my own story? Uh, sure. Um, that would be, you know, at that point, you're writing a novel. Um, and novel is, is, uh, it, it is fiction, and it's a whole other can of worms. Um, it's something that, that I work with, too. And I love writing novels. Um, in my experience, it's harder to write a novel. And it goes back to that same question. Why are you writing this? Why are you, capital Y, OU, why are you writing this? Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, mysteries still sell very well. Um, you, can, you can take that inspiration and turn it into a good story. Um, and if that's, if that's what's calling to you, that's, that's what you should do and, and, and give it a try. Um, but um, with, if you're sticking with a true case and you want to write true crime, um, you there's something about I think it makes it a le little easier to be that to to have ownership over that case and to know that you're going to be the first one to tell that story fully and completely and um, people editors specifically and agents will know that story they'll have heard about it in the news they can make a connection with it whereas if you're coming to them with a a standalone novel, um, they're going to, um, it's not going to be familiar to them. It's going to be a harder sell. And honestly, this is, this is another ugly part of the business. The first thing they're going to look at is they're going to look at your social media stats. So um, they're going to see, well, do you have at least 10,000 followers on Twitter? Um, how many followers do you have on TikTok? Where are you at on Instagram? Because Remember, publishing, and, and this should be like, write it down, put it on the wall. Publishing is about mitigating risk. And if you can understand that, you can, you can sell a lot easier. How do you mitigate the risk for the publisher going in? If you're an unknown author with an unknown novel, um, it's going to be a lot harder than going to them with uh, a story that they already know and understand, um, especially if you, know, you don't have many social media followers. Now, if you have a million followers on TikTok, you can write what you want and write your own ticket and contact an editor, and I'm sure they're going to publish it. But most of us don't have that. Um, you know, I've been working at this, uh, you know, since the beginning of Facebook, and I think I have like, <clears throat> I've worked my way up to about 10,000 followers, and that still doesn't like excite anybody. Um Oh, another thing that's important is uh, um, self-care. With writing about true crime, and this is becoming something that is being acknowledged more and more uh, and talked about more and more, is the damage that these cases can have on the people writing about them. Um, and if you're writing about a brutal murder and you're going through these files and autopsy reports on a daily basis, it's going to affect you. Um, so do you have a support system? Do you have a spouse that supports what you do? Do you have friends that you can talk about? Do you have coworkers that you can 
um, express what's going on with you. That's very, or a therapist, you know, it's very important with this stuff because what they've discovered is, and they started seeing this in wartime journalists that were embedded with uh, soldiers in like Afghanistan and Iraq, um, where they're not the ones that are fighting. They're not the ones that are killing anybody. They're just writing about it. But they started seeing these journalists come back and they're showing the same PTSD symptoms that the soldiers are showing when they return from battle. And they realize that the journalists are essentially picking up trauma like secondhand smoke. And it's and it it's affecting them as much as if they were holding that rifle um, like the soldier did. So this is going to seep in. It's going to affect you. Do you have that support system? Can you compartmentalize and stay and stay sane through the writing of this stuff? Um, I, you know, I have one little story here where when I was writing about Amy Mihaljevic, I got really invested in that story. I really wanted to find her killer. And it was all I could think about from when I woke up to when I fell asleep. I was trying to you know, if I could just outsmart whoever did this. And uh, it started affecting me in weird ways. And one one day my wife came home and uh, she walks in the house and I had removed everything from the living room, um, like, like couches, like furniture, everything. I'd stripped it all down and I was, I was vacuuming and deep cleaning the carpet and walls. And she's like, what the hell are you doing? And, uh, and I said, I don't know, but something in this house is making me sick. I just haven't felt well in weeks. And I think it's some sort of allergy. I think it might have to do with this room where I was working. I said, I'm, I'm just trying to clean everything. And she's like, it's not allergies. She's like, you're, de you're, you're depressed. You know, it's what you're working on is affecting you. And that's when I realized she was right. And uh, uh, I needed to do something about that. So um, you have to you have to have somebody that's going to pull you back from that that darkness. Uh, <clears throat> you know, once you figure out a case, once you're still thinking about it too, um, it's important to look at uh, true crime books that have come before. Um, you know what what are the true crime books that have done well, and what are the true crime books that have not done well? Um, and the you know the very first book that you got to read. Let me see. Is where it all started, is uh, in cold blood, and uh, this was the first true crime novel as as we know it, and uh, written by Truman Capote, and uh, you know, with the New Yorker, originally published in 1965. Um, <clears throat> Let me just read the opening paragraph of In Cold Blood. Um, the village of Holcomb stands on the high wheat plains of western Kansas, a lonesome area that other Kansans call out there. Some 70 miles east of the Colorado border, the countryside with its hard blue skies and desert clear air has an atmosphere that is rather more far west than middle west. The local accent is barbed with a prairie twang, ranch hand nasalness, and the men, many of them, wear narrow frontier trousers, Stetsons, and high-heeled boots with pointed toes. 
The land is flat and the views are awesomely extensive. Horses, herds of cattle, a white cluster of grain elevators rising as gracefully as Greek temples are visible long before traveler reaches them. Um, that, it doesn't seem like much now, but in 1965, when people picked that up, um, they were confused. You know, are we reading, is this a novel? Is this fiction? It reads like fiction. Truman Capote, you know, we, we know he's, he's this artistic writer. This doesn't seem like a crime case because up until then, all they've known about crime writing is in the newspapers where it's, it doesn't have language like that. It's, it, it just gives you the facts. And what Truman Capote does, what, what he did was show that you can write about true crime with the same language and grammar and skill that you use for the novel. And that changed everything. Um, it began a new movement, actually, that we'll get into in later classes a little bit more, but it's called New Journalism. It was, uh, it was the New Journalism Movement. And that is where writing nonfiction begins to read like fiction. What does that mean, though? Uh, what they were trying to do is have the best of both worlds. They wanted nonfiction, strict facts, but they wanted it to be interesting and to read like a good fiction story. Um, one of my favorite writers is this guy, Tom Wolfe, who was a novelist, but mostly a journalist. Uh, he wrote uh, The Right Stuff, which was about the Apollo missions to, uh, uh, to space. And um, Tom Wolfe never went to space, of course, but the astronauts who did, after they read his book, The Right Stuff, they came to him and they're like, how did you, how were you able to explain what it was like to be there? And, and he said, well, I just did thousands of hours of interviews with, with astronauts. And he learned about it until he could understand it completely. Um, so new journalism doesn't mean that you write, uh, doesn't mean that you take a story that's true and filter in fiction. It means you take what's real and make it read like fiction. But every little thing is still based on fact. So if you're talking about the weather, it better be the weather that was really there that day. If you're talking about, if you're entering into a character's mind, a subject's mind, a real person's mind, they better express to you what they were actually thinking. You can't make stuff up. Now the reader will read this and think, wow, he's so inventive. But you're, it's just a way of writing that makes it feel like, like a novel. Um, those make for the best true crime books uh, and the ones that seem to sell well. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Um, and then, you know, I think we're going to go to about 930 and then I'll, I'll, I'll get into some questions. Um, but let me share the screen and go to my desktop. Um, ignore the, uh, I think I got rid of all my, um, pornography. Let me see. Uh, where are we at here? Here we go. Okay. So I'm going to show you the difference between new journalism and reportage or, or what you would normally read in a daily newspaper. Um, so the first story I want to tell you about, um, these have to do with the 
suggested reading for this week. Hopefully most of you got this. There were two articles I suggested that you might want to read before this class. One of them is on this bizarre story about this backyard zoo in Ohio where lions and tigers and bears, um, oh my, um, got loose a couple years ago. Um, and here's what was written in um, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Lawmen hunted down and killed dozens of wild animals in the rainy fields of central Ohio after the owner apparently opened their dilapidated cages and set them free for the last time before killing himself. In all, 56 exotic animals, bears, lions, tigers, wolves, and leopards bolted for the hillside surrounding the 73-acre homestead of animal collector Terry Thompson, who authorities said shot himself in his driveway. Um, on Wednesday, schools closed and people were warned to stay indoors for fear of ravaging tigers and bears. So it's all it's all pretty much facts. Uh, they're still essentially using what's called the inverted pyramid for journalism and daily newspaper storytelling. So that's the same story as this story that was written in Esquire, uh, I think about a month later. The horses knew first. Terry Thompson kept dozens of them on his farm just west of Zanesville, a suffering river town in the seat of Muskingum County. Most of the living things in Zanesville had been born in Zanesville, or in the county at least. Thompson was one of the few importers. He had a particular eye for the unwanted. His horses weren't pretty animals except that they were horses, worn out chestnuts, muddy grays, and a semi-handsome paint named Joe. There was even a donkey and a fat little pit, pit pony in the mix, and now they were together in the pasture, more tightly packed than usual, running in a wide circle. They were rolling almost, the bunch of them moving slowly at first and now finding their old legs, picking up speed like starlings, like the bands of a hurricane. That, that's much more wonderful to read, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's the difference between journalism and new journalism. Now they both deal with facts. It's just the way that they are presented in, in some sort of narrative. Um, let me give you one more example. Um, this is about um, maybe maybe many of you have seen the Netflix documentary on Anna Delvey. Um, this is about uh, Anna Delvey. Even on her way, this was in the New York Times, this first piece. Uh, even on her way, and New York Times is somewhere in the middle between typical daily newspaper and new journalism. Even on her way to prison, even after a jury convicted her of swindling almost everyone she knew and a judge accused her of running a big scam, Anna Sorokin was sticking by her story. For years, Ms. Sorkin pretended to be Anna Delvey, a German heiress with a trust fund that paid for a life of glamorous ease. She lived in boutique hotels, wore designer clothes, and hung out in Manhattan's moneyed party circles. In reality, Ms. Sorokin, 28, was a Russian immigrant who walked out on bills. And then look at this. This is the story that um, made Anna Delvey um, a celebrity. It was in The Cut, which is the online presence of um, New York Magazine and written by Jessica Pressler. It started with money, as it so often does in New York. A crisp $100 bill slipped across the smooth surface of the mid-century inspired concierge desk at 11 Howard, the sleek new boutique hotel in Soho. Looking up, Neferidi Davis, the 25-year-old concierge who goes by Neff, was surprised to see the cash had come from a young woman who seemed to be around her age. 
She had a heart-shaped face and pouty lips surrounded by a wide tangle of red hair, her eyes framed by incongruously chunky black glasses that Neff, an aspiring cinematographer with an eye for detail, identified as Celine. Um, so you can you can sense the difference there. Um, and you know, which is which is more fun to read. And there are plenty of books that are written that are in the traditional journalism style, like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And those do get read. But the ones that are lasting um, are the ones that that have a driving narrative that is part of that new journalism process. So um, uh, I have one other example. Um, you'll never see a traditional newspaper article include a dream. Um, and uh, I was able to do this just once on an article that I wrote for Free Times um, about 20 years ago. This is on the murder of a young man named Joseph Kupchik. In dreams, Joseph Kupchik never remembers that he's dead, seems unaware that he plunged to his death off a parking deck in downtown Cleveland. It's always up to his twin brother to give him the bad news. His twin brother, John. Uh, John's dreams started shortly after Joe died and haven't let up since. Sometimes the two of them are at home playing video games. In this one, they're shooting hoops. Joe bounces the basketball against the backboard into the net and returns it to his brother. Joe, you're dead, says John. You died. But Joe only stares at him, uncomprehending. He's confused, John thinks, or maybe I'm the one who's confused. Maybe this is real. It's not, of course. Joe is dead in the real world. The cops think Joe committed suicide, but if it was a suicide, he found an unusual way to do it. A growing number of friends and family believe Joe was murdered. Either way, when John wakes up, he'll have to leave Joe behind. So let's give them a moment together. They've got a game to finish just now. And, you know, I was able to get that because um, it was a very interesting case. I, I was able to interview this, this uh, young man his identical twin brother. So it was like interviewing the victim himself because he looked like and, and, and spoke like him. It was very uncanny, but it gave me the opportunity to begin a true crime story, a real story inside of a dream. Um, so that's the fun stuff that you get to experience through this process. Um, uh, if you're looking at cases now, um, I like the five-year rule. Give it five years. Uh, you know, you see these cases that I'm sure people are champing at the bit to write about, like Delphi and the Idaho murders. But I really wonder how much we're going to be interested in reading about those cases three years from now. Um, I think there'll be a lot in the Delphi case, at least. It's a unique case and always will be because you've got these two young women who met up, had something to do with Snapchat and social media in general. Um, the Idaho murders, I think, are going to be interesting as a study of the killer who did this. Uh, this young man we're finding out was studying criminology and uh, almost aspiring to be the perfect <clears throat> serial killer. So, um, the that part of the story might be interesting enough to still read about in three years, but um, that's the sort of questions you should be asking. That's how to look for the perfect case. Uh, and um, yeah, so 
uh, let's open it up to questions. Um, you know, anything specific about what we talked about today? Um, we can also talk in general if you have any any general questions too. I'd be happy to happy to answer. I hope everybody had a decent time. This is a quiet group, James. Yeah. <laughs> um, so remember next week, I, I hope you're going to join me for the next few weeks. I'm going to walk you through the whole process. Next week will be um, how to conduct research and interviews for true crime uh, cases. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, and then we get into writing and editing, submitting your story to agents and editors, and then marketing and publicity. And there's the bell. Class is over for this week. Thank you for dropping by. There are five episodes of On Writing True Crime. If you have any questions about anything covered in the class, feel free to reach me during office hours at jamesrenner.com.